Good day, my brothers and sisters. This is Zachary Kameen, the Curious Christian. These are Curious Conversations. Uh, today, we're going to be dealing with uh, Pan-Africanism. Uh, we're going to do a quick introduction and then go through the uh, evolution of the term Pan-Africanism and Pan-Africanists and then a brief history of uh, this movement uh, leading all the way to our modern day uh, Black Lives Matter movement and it and alike. Uh, this is an important episode because of our times right now. Uh, we're seeing uh, the in workings and the outworkings of this Pan-African movement that's been going on for over a hundred years and I go into that um, later in this episode. Uh, you will enjoy it, you will laugh, you will cry, you will get mad, and uh, hopefully you will find great encouragement in it. Uh, there are some book reviews, there are some uh, good book recommendations in this that I've read um, recently, and all of which will be of great use to you. Enjoy the conversation, take care, and God bless. Good day, everybody. This is Zachary Kameen, the Curious Christian, and these are Curious Conversations. Well, this is uh, episode 57, and uh, it's been about a year and a half of great conversations, great conversation topics, great uh, communication, uh, trying to uh, understand, walk through, talk through. Not necessarily issues per se, but uh, what people perceive to be issues that I want to uh, help us renew our minds on the matters and actually uh, be willing to talk about these things. Uh, so the last couple episodes we've been dealing with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, I've, I've talked about theology, I've talked about slavery, I've talked about politics, I've talked about presidences. Uh, the House of Reps, the Senate. Uh, I've broken down the uh, reasons that America had, America's Congress had for going to war. Uh, all these things are uh, subjects, topics of discussion that have um, done very little but to breed hatred, uh, riotous natures, anger, protests, and the nature of this show is to uh, take these topics and to um, make them uh, more manageable, uh, to make them no longer controversial conversations as far as uh, you want to uh, collide with Blaze of Glory. Uh, with your opponent, but you have curiosities about why does somebody has a certain opinion on a certain issue, and you uh, you talk about it, you ask them questions, you uh, pose questions, uh, to, and to, this episode will be no different, and uh, this episode I do want to 
uh, talk about, discuss, and uh, lean into this idea uh, that I've um, heard, that I've seen pushed around, uh, bounced around, is this idea of Pan-Africanism. Uh, pushing, I want to push it around because I don't, I don't know exactly if uh, those who are seeking uh, to uh, promote a kind of uh, unified African continent uh, know what they are meaning or know uh, what they're asking for. And and like I said, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not coming at this as an assumption, assumptive. Like I, this is what they mean, and they're wrong. Type of thing. I have no problems telling somebody that they're wrong, uh, if I do believe that they're wrong. Uh, when it comes to this idea of pan-Africanism, that gets pushed around in uh, Black Lives Matter movement, in uh, and it's not just them. It, this has been a, a a phrase that's been around uh, since uh, the doctor the breaking down of the colonial walls uh, back in, I think, the 60s. Um, in Africa, when you have the Somalian uh, revolts, you have the Nigerian uh, civil... Like, there's, there's been a breakdown of uh, coloni- colonialism. And so now there's a call for, in many circles, and this has been a decades-long call for uh, pan-Africanism. This this concept needs to be addressed. This this concept needs to be considered. Uh, If anything, for uh, curiosity's sake, uh, the the questions that arise when you talk about pan-Africanism, especially in not African countries uh, is very interesting, baffling to me. Uh, you, you, you will, you'll see in movies, especially you've got uh, scenes in the Lethal Weapon movies. You see scenes uh, in certain Disney movies back in the '90s. Um, there's an uh, pan-Africanism that is uh, sought after, and I think it's in part due to uh, the falling away of kind of the last colonial uh, remnant of the apartheid state of uh, South Africa, and this desired uh, response of, okay, now that we've uh, shaken off the fetters of uh, European colonialism, uh, now we need to uh, unite as one uh, body. And there's, there's the debate about, okay, if, if we do this, uh, what would it look like? Would it look like the United States, where you have independent states, but with a, a central government that uh, kind of presides over to make sure that this uh, state isn't imposing too much upon their people uh, type of thing. And it is 
difficult to walk through these things. So, uh, in in this in this podcast episode, we will have a few segments, uh, kind of walking through uh, the history of Pan Africanism a little bit, and then also what, on first glance, I see as uh, the largest wedge of the Pan-African concept, which is um, nostalgia does not equal history or or past history or present reality. Let me say that again. Uh, Nostalgia does not negate or change uh, past history or present reality. And I'll unpack that come a couple of segments from now. Okay, let's define our terms. So the, the term uh, Pan-Africanism today means something in nature different than it had back when it was first coined back in the early 1900s. Now, early 1900s, uh, I don't know if the word, or the compound word, uh, Pan-Africanism or Pan-African was used in the 1800s, uh, but it was used in the very early, just turn of the uh, 20th century by W.E.B. Du Bois, a uh, prominent Pan-African Christian uh, brother in Christ who uh, was trying to make sense of all these things. And uh, his understanding of Pan-Africanism was uh, simply uh, simply this that uh, black Americans shared a commonality with uh, black Africans who were under colonial tyranny in that uh, they were both being mistreated by a uh, alien power or a power outside themselves. He, though, distinguished himself, or yeah, distinguished himself from other, uh, especially later in uh, modern or 21st century Pan Africans, in that he makes a distinction between American uh, black men and African black men and that uh, he did not want to... So, in, in his book, uh, The Soul of Black Folks, he starts off right at the beginning, the fourth thought, the foresaw, uh, saying that black men and women... Well, black men, he's only focusing on... Uh, or black folk, as he puts it, uh, have a dual vision... He says it's a miraculous vision, but it is a vision in that uh, 
they both see with their own eyes. They see through their own eyes and also they see through the eyes of another. Uh, And so the desired effect, and people can correct me on this, you know, I I have brothers and sisters who are uh, black Americans and also black Africans who live in America uh, who would declare themselves Americans. And his desire in this book, and I would say in the uh, Pan-African movement in his day especially, uh, was to remove, as he puts it, the veil, or rip the veil that was put up from the 200 years of uh, slavery, this veil of partition between uh, black and white. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to see a day where the uh, black man only had to see through his own eyes. Does that make sense? It made sense to me because I've used this language on this podcast before. Uh, He wanted to see, he wanted black men to be able to not have to filter. They wanted to be able to, he wanted to make it to where uh, black men and women uh, especially in in his book, he's focusing on the men. Uh, He wanted them to be able to uh, say things, do things, uh, make mistakes, fall short, uh, in such a way to where they could do introspection upon themselves without worry of extrospection, people looking at him from without, and him having to think about, well, what will my white neighbor think? What will a white American think about this? What will my employer think about this? Uh, he, he He wanted to see a day where there is a black perspective and a white perspective, sure. Uh, there's cultures, there's different cultures, um, and he says, and both of them are needed. He, he, he makes a very strong point of, uh, white people have made mistakes, uh, white people have made a blunder of things, black people have made a blunder of things, and they should be called to account for such things. Uh, he, but when things are done right, we need to commend them. Uh, he says this in his second chapter of his book, uh, that uh, you need to come, he says, uh, the Bureau of Freedmen, or the Freeman's Bureau in the uh, 1960s, uh, they blundered a few things, uh, he said, but uh, that didn't make the Bureau itself a terrible entity. He said it was a good uh, group that had a couple bad agents. It was a good bureau that had a couple bad agents. And, yes, that screwed over many freed men. Right? So, uh, the Freedmen Bureau was there to help establish slaves, or freed slaves, freed men, 
hence the name, uh, was a bureau started by the government um, in order to establish them as truly freedmen. So they were to give them land. So the whole idea of reparations uh, comes from the Freedman Bureau's uh, uh, mission statement, basically. They were there to help repair and rip down this veil that, that Du Bois longs for. Because, uh, as he put it, there was, there was something certainly more than uh, estrangement or alienation. Uh, but there was also a um, not a reciprocity of commendation. So uh, Du Bois was saying that we were that in the 1860s there was a distraction in American culture. Uh, one of it was certainly the Civil War. There was a huge, that was a, he calls it a distraction from uh, properly uh, preparing uh, black folk for uh, freed life. And uh, that made it to where there was a shaky foundation. Once the Civil War ended uh, and Abe Lincoln died, uh, there was a shift in things, uh, the Reconstruction Movement started slowing down, there was a accounting error, so when there were uh, black households that were given deeds to lands that when they showed up did not actually exist, so, and he says that wasn't a, he was, he was very quick to point out because he knew that there was like black supremacists, black nationalists even in his day that would have said, see they deceived us, blah 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 he was like, no, it was an accounting error, it was a whoopsie, uh, somebody screwed up, but he didn't he at least, he makes the point that he didn't see uh, maliciousness as the cause of uh, of the blunder because he says there were many uh, deeds to lands that were perfectly good. Yes, there were cases where, whoops, the deed of your lands in the middle of a lake that we didn't know existed. Uh, and we don't have any more land to be able to switch out with you. So, you know, sorry. And so he says, yes, that's a blunder. That's a whoopsie. That's bad map drawing on somebody's part. He was like, but malicious people don't go out of their way to give you land. It was, was it part of his argument in chapter two? Uh, malicious people don't go out of their way to give people land, give people freedom, give people, you know, this, that, and the other. And so we can't just jump right at the, oh, they're still trying to oppress us. As far as, uh, that is concerned in that circumstance. Uh, so, uh, a huge part of, so back to the definition of that was used by the godfather of Pan-Africanism. Uh, Pan-Africanism is the desire for freedmen, both in America, the West Indies, 
and also colonial Africa to be able to have a uh, not a dual citizenship. He didn't want he wanted to help uh, uh, black folk in the world find their place in the society in which they lived. He was not a revolutionary. He was a reformer. Uh, he was not a rev- uh, revolutionary. He was a reformer. So he didn't want to see the system flipped. What he wanted was for in in your context, whether you're in post-Civil War, post-emancipation America, in current uh, colonial Africa, or in uh, long-established uh, freed West Indies, how do we uh, change our minds in such a way as to, uh, in America's case, be call ourselves an American, while at the same time not removing your black identity, removing your black culture, as if your culture has nothing to bring to the table. So that is a huge part of it, is to establish yourself in the society in which you live in such a way that you can both be a member of that society and not have to uh, fully assimilate to that society and condemn or subordinate or demean your family, your past, your ancestors. That was the old definition. Uh, The new definition, from what I'm tracking, is the idea of uh, those in the sub-Saharan Africa of basically becoming their own country. So, Saharan, or north of the Saharan, and the Saharan uh, Africa is considered uh, Arabian, uh, and so they, there's a pan-Arabian uh, idea or ideal that everybody's fighting over there, and then there's a pan-African movement where, especially where they're desiring to see. Nigeria or West Africa kind of be the capital province or capital state or capital region of this country, but they want to see from South Africa to uh, West Africa be kind of united in this uh, pan-Africanism where in which uh, their cultures can thrive. Now, I'm not a opposed to that necessarily, uh, but uh, in the next segment, we'll kind of, I'd like to go a little bit more into the history of uh, Pan-Africanism. So, that, so I'd like to go into kind of the history and development of Pan-Africanism, kind of walk through how did it go from... Uh, black men in their context whatever the context is finding a way of living in those contexts 
uh, without, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater type of mentality. Uh, kind of, at, in, and in fact, Du Bois makes the point of give and take. We have something to offer, so do our, so do our white neighbors. Our white neighbors and our black neighbors both have something to offer at the table. We need to give and take, do this and the other. Uh, where there's value, grab it and seek to trade those things with our values and find a way. So he was using a what, what in modern jargon is a very conservative uh, bargaining platform. He didn't use the language of uh, problems that needed solutions. He used the language of uh, a bartering system of you have this, I have this, uh, I want what you have, and trust me, you want what I have, so let's make a deal. And deal make, and so negotiating, deal making, things of that nature. That's what he strove after, at least um, as he establishes in his book. Uh, in our modern definition, it is a, uh, it's post-colonialism, it's post uh, civil rights movement. It's post, you know, post all these things, and it has shifted to more of a um, centrality on blackness and uh, less focused on context. So the the major context, the meta context, is your blackness, and so let's unite over that. But that was not the original. Uh, context. That wasn't the original meta, meta context. He, he, the voice seen that there was a dual meta context of your blackness and your Americanness or your uh, Englishness if you're in an English colony, your Italianness if you're in an Italian colony, uh, you know, whatever the meta government was. Uh, if you're a Christian, you also have that major overarching meta. Uh, context. If you're a Muslim, you have that major meta context. If you're an atheist, you have that major meta context. And so he wanted to see a um, overarching funnel in which uh, black men brought things to the table, white men brought things to the table in this American table, in the context of America so as to um, nourish, mend, bring forth a lasting relationship uh, with Amer in American culture between uh, white and black Americans. I hope that makes sense. Uh, and the difference between and, and the difference of what's going on right now, where uh, there is a desire or a goal in mind of uh, casting off any uh, relationship uh, that or leaning more heavily on blackness so as to uh, reach the goal of a unified Africa in the African continent uh, sub-Saharan. Uh, hope that makes sense. Uh, that's that's what I'm tracking as far as those definitions. 
So if, if you hear somebody t- say, talk about Pan-Africanism today, they're uh, talking more about, if they're a modern uh, Pan-African, they're referring to a desired outcome, which is a united sub-Saharan Africa. If they're a mid-Pan-African, uh, which we can get into, that, that, that was the throwing off colonialism. So that was during the revolutionary times, the Civil War times. Uh, so nobody u- uses that language as much in Africa. They kind of use that language here in America. Uh, right now, especially with the uh, BLM movement, they're using a lot of that, pan- that mid-Pan-African uh, uh, rhetoric. Uh, but at least in Africa, the, it's, it's establishing in the African continent an African country by which uh, you can have all the uh, countries in the sub-Saharan uh, Africa be united under one rule. And those who are talking are usually in West Africa, and of, co- and of course they lean towards, well, it should be West Africa, who is uh, the lead province of uh, this uh, this movement, should be, the, or of this country. If you spend any large amount of time listening to these podcasts, my brothers and sisters, uh, you'll, you'll find that when I'm talking about history, I'm more focused on biography. And so when I'm doing this quick, uh, introduction to, uh, Pan-Africanist history, there'll be a lot of names, but I'll pause on a couple names or I'll pause on one name especially and uh, kind of break them down a bit. Um, so, the idea of Pan-Africanism uh, really started um, circulating. And, and a lot of this information I'm getting is one from my reading of The Soul of Black Folks and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois' uh, book. At the same time, uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica actually has a quick uh, history, which uh, they break it down faster than uh, I would if I would have done this by my lonesome. Uh, so, I just want to real quick uh, go through uh, what kind of the history is of Pan-Africanism. Now, Pan-Africanism is a response to uh, the Civil War, Emancipation, Reconstruction, and After Reconstruction. Uh, It is uh, how do African slaves um, who have just been freed properly relate to their former slave owners or abolitionists um, northern whites who have uh, t- 
taking them in, but now we're getting irritated with them. Uh, there is a uh, disparity between the North and the South as far as education goes. And then as you can imagine, there is a disparity between uh, the, uh, there's an education gap between the Northern whites and the Southern whites, and then there's an even more education disparity between the whites and the uh, blacks in uh, the South. And so, and there's a disparity of education between the Northern blacks and the Southern blacks. And so there's this clash of cultures um, that are happening along with just after Civil War, just after Reconstruction, the carpetbaggers and um, all kinds of things, promises that weren't able to be kept and things of that nature. And so now they're trying to figure out how to work through this. Um, this was um, kind of kicked off with a minister named Alexander Crummel who uh, preached in New York um, as um, cited in uh, Du Bois's um, book Souls of Black Folks. Uh, he then moved to England, then to Africa, and then I believe came back to America for a time um, before his uh, going home to be with the Lord. Uh, there's also uh, Martin uh, Delaney and uh, Edward Blyden. Uh, the earliest days, it was a lot of uh, Delaney was, um, believed that uh, black people could not prosper alongside whites, and so he suggested that Africans should separate from the United States and establish their own nation, whether that would be uh, moving out west, uh, moving to one of the uh, West Indies islands, uh, moving to South America. Uh, or, in uh, many suggested, uh, moving back to the continent of Africa, finding a spot there and setting up. Uh, there was this problem with that, though, because there was uh, European colonialism already there, too. Uh, understand that America was a colony, or it's colonized by the English, and then we got independence. Uh, so the idea to shake off... Uh, colonization is not simply a white and black disparity. Uh, white people didn't want to be colonized either. Uh, they didn't enjoy, white people don't enjoy being considered second class citizens either. Which obviously creates the issue of like, well, why are they, the, uh, the pan-Africanists are like, well, you don't like being called second-class citizens by the English, but now you're treating us like second-class citizens. So, how's this work? Uh, there's a Christian criticism by Du Bois where he says that uh, America has yet to grow up in her Christian heritage. And he's, he sees that there is a wavering or in the shaking by uh, the Christian uh, body in America, but the problem is is that not all of America is actually Christian. Um, when you get into the 
uh, Pan-Africanism. Uh, du Bois is really the godfather of uh, Pan-Africanism. He uh, coins phrases like uh, the problem of the color line and uh, the quote-unquote Negro problem. So he is uh, dealing with a social status that he defines as the quote-unquote Negro problem. And uh, he cites, he talks about that at the beginning, his forethought of the book. He says that a lady comes up to him and asks him what it's like to be America's problem. Pan-Africans would say that they're not the problem, but it's, it's, that it's America that's the problem. And that it's a, America is their problem. Um, and now Thomas Sowell, and I'll get into this later, would say something different, and I won't, um, hold me to, uh, coming back to him. Uh, among the most important Pan-Africanists of the first decade, uh, was, uh, Marcus Garvey. This was the 20th century. Um, in the years of uh, War I, Garvey championed uh, African independence. So, and he uh, sought to do um, taking people from America, taking black people from America, and taking them to uh, Africa. Uh, it fell through. I'm going to have to look into why it fell through. Um, I, I wouldn't doubt that part of it had to do with uh, uh, naval aggression on the seas. Um, you need protection to do something like that. You need naval protection. Um, you need a lot of resources. You need a country to take them to and would be willing to take in a lot of people. Um, you know, assuming, uh, the numbers of, I think it's, uh, 51 million at the turn of the, uh, century or, or, or something of that nature. Um, you're dealing with a lot of numbers. You're dealing with a lot of... Uh, men and women, you're dealing with a lot of uh, resources that you have to figure out. So either way, it fell through. Um, there were multiple congresses, um, but uh, a lot of it had to um, circle around. So let me back up. So in the 1920s and 40s, uh, there were prominent black intellectuals who advocated Pan-African ideas um, such as C.L.R. James and George Padmore. Um, both men were from Trinidad. Uh, in uh, the 30s, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so this was going on from the 30s until uh, 59 in Padmore's death. Uh, he was Padmore was a theorist um, dealing with, and he influenced gentlemen like uh, Leopold and uh, Amy, who were uh, a Senegal, and I can't pronounce the last name, sorry guys, uh, last country's name. And uh, it was they, those two were disciples of his. 
Um, there's also um, people from other African countries who, again, were seeking a uh, how to respond to their context of colonial rule. Right? So, in their case, they weren't taken away from their motherland. People came to their motherland. So now what do they do? How do they respond to that? Uh, despite their origins outside the United States, a lot of those uh, Pan-Africanists drew many of their ideas from African-Americans. Um, and also many of them, like James and Padmore, came to America and stayed here for a good amount of time, sitting under the teaching of many Pan-Africans over here. Uh, now, in the 1940s, there was a recession of a receding of African American influence on and leadership on this movement uh, due to uh, the Red Scare. The Red Scare was the fear of communism um, being spread throughout the world. So that's when uh, the Western world and the Eastern world, the capitalists and the communists, uh, set up their economic warfare, set up their, in many cases, uh, military warfare as well. We um, deal with uh, so in Africa they're dealing with European rule uh, and they're trying to figure out how to work with that. I know that uh, one gentleman from Ghana believed that what they needed to was simply unite the whole continent economically and culturally and politically and then they can all just kick out uh, the country or kick out the um, colonizers as as they put it and of course uh, he, being from Ghana uh, he sought the independence of Ghana uh, seeing that come to fruition um, in 1957 uh, obviously many African Americans cheered um, those developments in in Africa. Excuse me. Uh, beyond that, uh, there, like I said, there was a recession on all those things, and there was a development in culture, and uh, a lot of the culture was trying to seek after African roots, especially in the 1960s, and tried to. Uh, separate themselves from European cultures so they didn't dress in uh, European garb they didn't wear European suits as much they sought to wear more traditional African wear any kind of traditional African wear uh, some of them tried to look into you know specifics making sure that they don't put on anything that would embarrass them or uh, in, embarrass them dealing them being uh, African Americans uh, seeking to dress more like Africans. We don't need to have a situation like those in Congress who are wearing the uh, scarves and turned out that the scarves were actually uh, slave owner scarves. That, that was an awkward situation for everybody. Um, but it makes sense since they're uh, Democrats. Anyways, uh, Democrats were slave owners. What are you going to do? So there were, like I said, there were multiple congresses in uh, 1919. There was uh, 
a Congress uh, dealing with the uh, or declaring uh, for the first time the uh, desire for independence from colonization of which Du Bois was there. Uh, there was a third African Congress in uh, 1923 and then a fourth in 1927. There was a uh, there wasn't another Congress until 1945 and that was in Manchester, England and most of those most of that Congress was dealing with uh, or it was almost an exclusively African proper Congress and how they needed to deal with uh, colonial rule which is uh, fascinating to me that you know you would think um, that they that colonizers would not allow the colonized to have a congress um, in their country you know um, not saying that they can't but I'm saying that you know, I'm not saying that that doesn't prove that uh, the colony colonizers were terrible people or anything like that I'm just saying that they, they got to organize uh, Congress and they decided uh, the best place to or the safest place to have a Congress is in the uh, countries of their colonizers uh, now that, that that may have been making a statement I have no I have no doubt that that was more than making a statement than anything it was probably politically expedient and important for them to have them at those countries um, but at the same time, there may have also been other reasons. Um, so, dealing with uh, uh, after World War II, uh, there was the uh, kicking off of uh, the AU, the uh, African Union, the OAU, the Organization for African Unity. Um, there were a lot of unions, a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of communist um, bent organizations um, s swept into uh, these pan-Africanist um, movements. Uh, to this day, there's a call for unity of uh, the African countries that have been... Um, declared independence and have regained independence there's been a call for a uh, unification or a kind of European Union or an African Union type of deal uh, that they are seeking and I'm not saying that it can't happen I'm just I'm saying that that a desire for a unity in uh, a continent well, the Europeans did it, so uh, not to be too silly about it, but if the desire for Pan-Africanism is to shake off Western ideas and, you, and, there's, and European ideas, and you have the United States of America, which, again, it's united, the Union of States, and you have... Uh, the European Union another 
Western and again European idea but in it, now you've got the uh, Pan-Africanists seeking in the name of sh- shaking off European ideas seeking to adopt a European idea or at least a European practice now they may say well we're going to try to do it in an African way That that's fine I'm not saying that you can't do it that way I'm just saying like uh, that shows that not everything the Europeans do are wrong or evil or whatever they don't corrupt everything they don't do everything wrong now obviously I'm European so I can't so I'm slightly biased on the matter uh, now I, I mentioned that African or that not African but uh communists had infiltrated into the Pan-African movement. Uh, That was in part the reason why uh, the African-American leaders ran away. Now, it it says in the Britannica it's due to their fears of uh, kind of being caught. And so they kind of like went into hiding. Um, I partly have no doubt that uh, many of them though were like had no desire to associate with communists though uh, with many anti-christian sentiment you have uh, Christian pan-Africanists who are like yeah that you know, the dream sounds great but do I really want you know if I had to pick between a gospel infiltrating the earth and making the world a better place versus separatism and separating into what? Uh, communism? Well, communism doesn't work. It didn't work in France. It doesn't, isn't working in Russia. Now all of a sudden they want me to do it in Africa. I can't be a part of that. And so uh, many African-American, Pan-African leaders uh, rescinded, receded. Uh, we don't know exactly why. I'll have to read up more on that. If anybody has any books on that, please let me know. And uh, that all being said, there are some uh, black leaders, uh, black economic leaders, black cultural leaders who are pushing back. Gentlemen like Larry Elder, uh, gentlemen like uh, Dave Shannon, or Chocolate Knox from the Cross Politics Show. You have. Uh, Thomas Sowell, you have Walter Williams, you have uh, Shelby Steele. These are great uh, men. Uh, I would presume that uh, I know that a couple of them are very much Christian. I'm not sure if all of them that is listed off are Christian. Uh, I do know that they are all conservative and are, and I do know that they are all American and are maybe not proud Americans, but they are certainly not a radical in the sense of seeking to shake off the American concept and then put in the uh, communist uh, concept of of what we're seeing in places like Venezuela and things like that. 
and what we've seen throughout history in France and, and in many parts of Europe and Asia and whatnot, and what we're seeing in China. None of, all of them are anti-communist. Uh, most of them are Christian, and so I commend those gentlemen. Uh, top uh, books that I would recommend uh, are, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, and have been t- quoting throughout this whole uh, episode, are uh, uh, The Soul of Black Folk and uh, Thomas uh, Soul's uh, Discrimination and Disparities. Those are two books I recommend to you. I just got done reading them uh, before I started this podcast episode. Um, the boys is I had just finished uh, today and uh, absolutely loved it and inspired this episode greatly and conversations that I had whilst I was reading and so felt like it was an important conversation, especially with the communist uh, movement of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is, as I mentioned, a huge effect of a communist uh, worldview, a materialistic worldview infiltrating into the Pan-African movement and has in many ways successfully taken over the mission of the Pan-Africanists. And so now it's no longer about uh, Africanism uh, and Pan-Africanism, things like that. It is a truly European idea, communism is, and it has infiltrated the crap out of the Pan-Africanists, and you see it in full bloody fury in the Black Lives Matter movement uh, mission. Uh, Stay away from there. Run to leaders. If you are a Pan-Africanist, a desired Pan-Africanist, I would suggest reading uh, books by uh, Booker T. Washington, by Thomas Sowell, Shelby Steele, Larry Elder. Uh, Dave Shannon is a uh, movie director and is a cameraman. He's also a contributor of uh, the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and is a co-host of the Cross Politic Network. He is a uh, big guy in media, in my opinion, and is growing more and more. And you need to check him out. You need to check out all those gentlemen uh, for you need to, if your desire is to see greatness happen in your communities, then those men are to whom you should be influenced and those are the men to whom you should seek to be discipled. Was I right or what? Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the episode. That uh, You guys didn't get too mad at me throughout it. I try to do a good job of making these controversial uh, topics more palatable, more uh, curiosity rather than anything. And if uh, you weren't a fan, um, I apologize. Uh, watch some of my other episodes and hopefully you'll uh, enjoy those more. Uh, if you want to follow me on uh, YouTube, you can just uh, search uh, The Curious Christian. 
I am also on Parler, uh, which is uh, basically the better Twitter. Um, I would suggest going on there, following me at Zachary Kameen. I'm also on Facebook. I'm throughout many of the uh, Muslim and Christian dialogue things, uh, political groups and things like that, just uh, seeking to understand uh, these issues and also being able to uh, give good words in the midst of uh, many of these conversations. Uh, if you want to uh, talk with me or anything like that, um, by all means, uh, you can uh, email me at ZacharyKameen at Yahoo.com. And I will be, um, just make sure that you put in curious conversations in the subject so that I know uh, that um, you are a listener. Uh, if you have any topics that you want me to touch on or talk about, if you want to be on my show, by all means, uh, let me know. Uh, I would gladly have you on the show. Um, and uh, if if all else fails, you'll just have to wait for me to uh, come up with another topic on my lonesomes. Uh, there's plenty of t- conversations to go around, and I will most certainly uh, help you guys indulge your guys' uh, topic um, enjoyments and your, hopefully I can help cure some of your uh, anxiety, some of your uh, worries about certain conversation topics, um, anything's on the table, uh, especially if there's good food. So a lot of these topics that you'll see on my uh, podcast uh, reel are things that, um, if done right, you can talk about at any setting, uh, especially at the dinner table, and I would strongly encourage you. Uh, take the information, take the topic, take the rhetoric, take the everything that you've gained from the show, from this episode, from um, these string of episodes that I've come up with, and hopefully you can uh, work them out in your own life and realize that God is still good, God is still on his throne, and as always, um, my brothers and sisters, as you go forth, Drink your coffee and come to Jesus. Take care.